Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. go. Silicon Valley reporting Colossus Kara Swisher. Hours for the hour. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM. Using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. Subscribe and rate us at link fulldradio.com. Joining me is a pleasure. It's an honor. Is Kara Swisher, the veteran Silicon Valley correspondent. She is host of the Recode, Decode podcast and Pivot on Vox. She's a columnist for the New York Times. She's been on the HBO show Silicon Valley. Uh, you have about 50,000 bullets on your LinkedIn. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I don't have a LinkedIn. I don't, do I? Oh do my I gosh, she's not on LinkedIn. <laughs> You're not a LinkedIn influencer? Yeah. No, I, no, no. Do you live no. in San Francisco I, proper? Yeah, I live in I live in San Francisco. I've recently moved to uh, the District of Columbia, uh-huh. um, and so it's uh, so I, I live a lot of places. But my kids are in D.C., so I'm here a lot, and I have a house here, and I've sort of moved here almost permanently. And for coronavirus, this is where I am. Very nice. And so you are also now a columnist for the New York Times, which is amazing to me. And I yes. was thinking back. I know I wonk out with you on on social media about this all the time, but you guys, uh-huh. I thought, were a crown jewel. You and Walt Mossberg. And all things digital is what it used to be called at the Wall Street Journal. Yep. And Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. steps up on the eve of the financial crisis and shells out $5 billion for Dow Jones, the parent of the Wall Street Journal. Yes. I thought, if anything, yes, you guys were the, the shiniest bauble in that, that he would fight to keep Ooh. you. That if he heard that maybe you were being courted by somebody else, he'd call you and say, Kira, let's talk about it. <laughs> what happened that you guys stepped away um, in 2014? It's a, it's. You know, we talked about it a little bit, but we were there for several years under Murdoch's ownership. We were there longer than you think. Um, and so we didn't leave immediately and we didn't go away. We were, we were operating for, I don't know, three or four years there. And he, he attended our conferences and everything else. And he appeared on stage at uh, the Code conference. I'm sorry, do you want me to close this? This is so it's a, Oh, it's very, it's very authentic in the okay. time of coronavirus. All right. Okay, all right, okay, fine. Dogs, cats, vacuums, whatever you like. Well, there'll be dogs in a minute <laughs> as soon as they see the cat. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so we were operating there for a long time and signed actually three contracts with them uh, during the time we were there. Um, and then the last year, you know, after the stuff that happened in Britain uh, with the, uh, they were tapping the phones of that poor dead girl and stuff, we just sort of wanted to do something on our own. And they, we, we just had different business ideas. Uh, and and uh, without going into it in detail, we just, you know, we weren't big enough for them to care. We were, you know, we made a lot of money for reporters, but, you know, in terms of their overall strategy, I don't, I don't know why they made any decisions they made. So we went out and looked for other funding and, um, and then came back to them and we were, had to give them a right of first refusal. It was super complex, but we ended up going with NBC and, uh, and, an, and a media investor, uh, who we, who we went with and started, uh, code and recode, uh, recode decode and all the other things. So we just left and, you know, it, Whatever. People leave things all the time. They had their own game, and we just had our own game. You you and Walt Mossberg, who was like the legendary tech yeah. product reviewer at the Wall Street Journal, you were interviewing the likes of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison mm-hmm. on yeah. stage. We I continued mean, to. With, yeah. with ease. And I would think, yeah. from that perspective, I mean, maybe they didn't understand digital back then. I believe Rupert Murdoch even bought MySpace. Am I, am I wrong? Oh, he had a lot. No, he went way back before that. He had, uh, there was something, and I'm blanking on the name of it. They they were involved very early uh, in a lot of digital things, like a lot of people, uh, like Time Magazine, all kinds of companies were doing that. And Rupert Murdoch uh, had, I kept blanking on the name of the thing he did with Anthea Disney and a bunch of people, but they they had been making digital investments for a very long time. And their big one, obviously, was MySpace, which was bought with an executive named Ross Levinson. And so they were involved in that. And of course they bought the wrong company because Facebook was the one that got big, obviously in MySpace is now sort of in the dustbin of history, of digital history. Um, and they were constantly making, they had something actually called the Daily. Oh yeah, I do remember. Which is funny because, yeah, you know, they made a lot of, at that time they were doing those investments in the Daily. Mm. And one of the things that we had argued with Rupert and others about there was, you're putting all this money in that 
and you've got this this other thing that's really successful and making money. So it was kind of an interesting, you know, our, our division, we wanted to do all things financial, all things health, all things this. And they love this daily thing, this iPad only thing. I think he got sort of seduced a little bit by Steve Jobs in that regard um, to do to be to, to do this iPad only thing. And it didn't work. It's also gone. Um, so they've always been super active in different things. Um, it just wasn't, you know, we had a homegrown hit and they, they just weren't that interested in investing in it. And that's all just the way things go, you know, you, you know you, but they, he was, he, he tried a lot of things. He sure. wasn't, they weren't particularly successful in a lot of things, except for the subscription to the wall street journal, the online version, which was started by a bunch of people pre Rupert Murdoch. Um, and, uh, and that, that's done very well for them. I think this, being in the subscription and he stuck to that, the idea of subscriptions over advertising, he did a good job. There. So Kara, you, you joined the wall street journal. What was it in 1997? Somewhere around there. I yeah, remember reading your Boomtown column like forever. I uh-huh. was an early investor. Yeah. I was one of those idiots who bought Netscape on the day of the IPO. Yeah. Thinking Good that, you know. You. you probably did okay. No, I'm not, not did. really. It's not what you're supposed to do when all the, the small people oh. are, are left uh, after Wall Street gets its bite and the stock yeah. runs up like fivefold. But I was it intensely yeah, interested. I remember the first time I used Netscape in college. It was my freshman year. Mm-hmm. I built a website with flashing stars wow. and animated GIFs and everything. And mm-hmm. I was intensely interested in what was going on in the late 90s. Um, tell me about Boomtown. Tell me about some of the things you covered initially. I mean, Silicon oh, Valley is truly, Boomtown. truly, wow. truly yeah. finally in the public Early. consciousness. You have uh, yeah. uh, brokerage ads everywhere. You have tech magazines that are like the size of phone yeah. books. I remember the Industry Standard yeah, and Red Herring. Yeah, yeah. Interesting standard was interesting because I had all I have all the copies still, and you can see them start off very thin, and then they get really thick, like sort of a Vogue magazine in September kind of issue. Yeah, and then they get thin again. So if you put them on a bookshelf, you can sort of see the history of that boom period very clearly from a from an analog sense. Um, you know, it was it was an interesting time, and so I got there in the in the mid nineties because I had written a book on AOL. I'd worked for the Washington Post, writing about early early digital uh, technologies, and so they didn't really have that many people at the Journal writing about this. I, they didn't have a principal internet reporter; they didn't even call it that. And Walt Mossberg and I became friends through writing my book on AOL because he was one of the first people to really identify what was happening. And so he recommended they hire me, and they were looking for someone to write about the internet. And so I went to the San Francisco Bureau and started writing about digital technologies. And I think I was the only one there. There was some stuff on WSJ.com. So I just started writing about these companies and got to know them. And and over time, I ended up writing the Boomtown column, which was later, which was many years later from the original uh, reporting that I did, which was just, I was just a beat reporter on the internet. So, and then, and then I did the column because I thought it deserved, uh, you know, it was sort of the beginning of the ideas that I had around tone, uh, tone of voice and, and personality within the reporting that I think was fresh compared to a lot of people who were doing sort of down the line, this happened yesterday kind of stuff. Now, you had mentioned it. I loved your book, There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere, The AOL Time Order Debacle mm-hmm. and the Quest for a Digital mm-hmm. Future. The, ma- the, the monster AOL Time Warner deal at the turn of the century, I believe it was January of mm-hmm. 2000, that was the high water mark for kind of NASDAQ 5000 new economy thing. Yeah. But I look back yeah, at it, it now. You have the NASDAQ above 9000. You have players such as Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google representing, what is it, almost 15 to 20 percent of the S&P 500. Over 20. Over 20. Oh, my. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. And so we've been up this road before. And the mega deal now, I don't know if it's apples to apples, but AT&T, the old Ma Bell, buying mm-hmm. uh, Time Warner, what was left of Warner, and the big bauble there is HBO Max. What do you think about kind of that pairing of of wireless and distribution with, with big well, content? Well, I always... Well, I thought it was a big idea. You know, AOL was directionally correct, and actually, what what turned out, they were sort of pioneers on the quest of this stuff. And so, I think a lot of what happened was the was the was the cultural issues between the two companies and sort of the frothy stock market. And AOL had a lot of sort of sketchy characters around the edges, and some of their business practices, you know, were questionable. A lot of round tripping and things like that. But directionally, they were absolutely correct that you had to marry distribution with content, and they wanted their their goal was to take the case assets of Time Warner and distribute over that. And so, you know, sometimes you have the right idea and you're very early. There's lots of, there's tons of examples that in tech, like tons and tons. And so um, I think they really did, they were directionally correct and they were 
operationally wrong and in terms of how the the two sides the time warner people and the AOL people met was really kind of ugly and so that's really what was wrong with i mean it may have just been early people didn't have the right devices in their home they didn't there was no iphone iphone really set sure. things off when it was when it came out and so some things are timing some things are execution some things are others but i the idea behind it was the correct idea um and and it, what it, what it what it showed was sort of these later clashes that would happen between media and technology that continue to this day actually which you know which is interesting now what if i told you at the turn of the century that at&t or one of the one of the the children of Ma Bell. In the end, it was SBC in San Antonio, yeah. Texas, would end up buying uh, the, the you know HBO and Warner Brothers studio and whatnot. And Verizon, formerly Bell Atlantic, would own the stub that was Yahoo and AOL. Yeah, it's yeah, kind right. of yeah. unbelievable to think back over well, twenty. You know, an, sense, kind of an though. old it, media it makes... one out. Yeah, I guess it's not old media one out because those two are struggling. I mean, look at the uh, look at Google's in content, yeah. Amazon's in content, um, you know, Apple's in content. Everyone's in everyone else's uh, backyard essentially. And so, and, and you know, you have Comcast buying NBC. It's not that unusual. I mean, lots of different people own these networks at different times, right? Um, and so, I think if you are say a cable company or a telephone company, you really do have to think hard about owning the content at the same time. And so I don't know if it's such a far afield thing that they they would be a natural, it's a lot better owner than, I don't know, Cap Cities necessarily. You know what sure. I mean? Like, why does anyone own anything? Um, and so I don't, I don't think it was that uh, or Gulf and Western owned one. Anyway, they all, they, you know, Sony came in and bought uh, pieces of, of studios and things. So I think everyone's sort of trying to figure out where the next thing is going. There was a whole lot of investment for a while, uh, you know, in these cable, these idea of big cable bundles with internet and things like that. And that sort of fell to the wayside. And so I'm not surprised that you sort of want to marry distribution uh, with content in any way, whatever the distribution is. Right now it's over mobile networks, of course. And so that's why Apple and uh, and others are trying to get in here in a big way. Do you remember how we used to have these debates over what was it, open access and net neutrality with Comcast and yeah, at home? Yeah, we still have them. And, and now I'm really thinking about it in sharp relief, and I'm sure you are too. My kids right now as I'm doing this interview are uh, at school on Zoom. We're all hogging yeah. the Comcast bandwidth in this house. There are apps that are right. absolutely critical to the functioning of everything that's going on. My job on bandwidth right now, uh -huh. their school, their schooling on bandwidth, everything that we buy on, on Amazon or Instacart. Uh, what has happened to that conversation that these are actually essential, should be government protected pipelines to and from the house? It seems like we absolutely forgot well, about that. I think no, I don't know if we have. So, I mean, it was go it went back and forth and back and forth. It depends on the administration. I think the issue is it depends on who's in who's in power as as these ideas around net neutrality go around. The Democrats tend to be more favoring uh, of not the cable companies, and then the Republicans are more favoring. I think you know it, it's it, it depends on what the the FTC. Um, is is going to uh, is going to do, and that's the that's what why you have these uh, these arguments going on. And I do think the question, I mean, one of the big fights was between Netflix and Comcast right. or the cable companies. And so once they got theirs and they got big enough, of course, they sort of stopped fighting. Sure, the fight. sure. Um, and I think there is an issue that these these digital lines are critically important to development and to schooling. Like right now with the Zoom thing, like we can all joke all you want how bad Zoom is with these schools, which they are, they're terrible. Um, but a lot of kids don't have access, don't have basic access to, to high-speed internet access. And now what do they do when schools are going on online? And same thing is they don't have devices. Like let's, let's not even talk about access. They don't have devices in order to do the schooling. And so it's easy to think of when you have money and you have means and things like that. But the fact is that so many people are zeroed out of what the future is. Um, and we have to think hard about what that means. And some people do feel, and I'm one of them, that, that internet access is something that like telephone access, there should be a very basic amount of it for every U.S. citizen. Um, they do it in other countries. It's they, The fact that we argue over here is kind of nutty. Um, but it's really important to develop economic development. It's important to educational development. And so it's really important, I think, to think hard about what you know, about this idea, instead of talking about bandwidth hogs and people watching movies and doing video games, that's, I get that why that's important, but it's also important to understand how critical high-speed access is to, to uh, citizens 
that are less uh, enabled than others. Kara, is 5G going to kind of moot this debate anyway, when, when there's enough bandwidth? Allegedly. Allegedly. We've been told allegedly. for years. But look, <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. I think I'm, it causes coronavirus right now. Right? I'm old enough to remember it's when people said 2G, 2G was overrated or, or it was actually, could you? Yeah. I, I, th- I, I think it was a Stephanie Meta uh, column in Fortune magazine around 2002 that said, someday you're going to be able to take phone calls over Wi-Fi. I was like, <laughs> keep dreaming on. Yeah. You know, now Wi-Fi yeah. is ubiquitous. You can't imagine. Imagine that world or what happened in 2007 and 8 with the iPhone. But could it be indeed possible, especially now with them super merged up, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, uh, the cable companies bleeding into wireless service, that this is just going to be so ubiquitous it it might end up being too cheap to meter? You know, I I don't know. I I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I think we have to just wait and see. I think it's always the hope that a faster ability to do this, and it can do all kinds of different things. I think the overall idea is that everybody should have access to high-speed data, right, at a price that is affordable for everybody. And so we can, you know, economic interest, especially right now when you're thinking about returning from coronavirus, you know, we've got to have the most the most ability for citizens to communicate um, going forward, the, the, the most the most robust way for citizens to communicate. And you can just see it by this crisis that we need it for every citizen, not just for the wealthiest citizens. We're talking to Kara Swisher. She is a Silicon Valley colossus. She has since relocated back to Washington, D.C. Isn't that where it all started for you? You were at some alternative paper yeah. and yeah, I was at Georgetown this, I Hoya. For a lot of places. Yeah, I worked. For, I went to Georgetown. I worked for uh, for uh, the City Paper in Washington. I went to the Washington Post pretty early in my career as a very low level person. I delivered mail. I did all kinds of stuff. But I worked my way up eventually. I did go to Columbia Journalism School, so I'm not like without. Like I, I did a lot of the schooling and things like that. Although it's in hindsight, it was relatively unnecessary to go to journalism school. Um, but uh, but I, I worked for the Washington Post, and I worked for Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and now the New York Times. So I'm just working my way up to the newspaper. I, I guess I've done all three of them, the big ones. Kara, I saw a photo on social media yesterday of Bill Gates last yeah. fall, and I'll send it to you. He looks like this, this grizzled, weathered soothsayer. Yeah. His heart is heavy mm-hmm. with the fact that he was very... Uh, ahead of his time with warning that the pandemic yeah. is what keeps him yeah, up at night. He was very prescient. He was very prescient. Yeah. I want to take you back, and very few people remember this. In 2000, this guy was yeah. a villain. They were talking about yeah. breaking up Microsoft. I remember he was snarky in those depositions, and Microsoft was the yeah. big enemy and everything. Yeah. That has to be one of the un- most unbelievable rebrandings in, in history. I put that up there with like Justin oh. Timberlake, who was like a teen band punchline, <laughs> but then he goes Timberlake. on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You know, Hyundai, Justin yeah. Timberlake, Apple, like incredible turnarounds. Okay. All Aren't right. you okay. struck um, by the fact that he's now no, known as like no. the most famous philanthropist on the planet? You know, money cleans up a lot of things. Like a lot of, a lot of people like that, Carnegie, there's all kinds of history of that in the United States. Rockefellers, you know, they were not, they were pretty sharp elbowed business people, I think, in a way that Gates was never even reached those heights of uh, awfulness. But, you know, he definitely changed his life when he moved around to philanthropy and took this enormous fortune he made. Some, you know, some, in some ways, many people feel nefariously in, in certain ways of pushing down businesses. But, um, but you know, and there was the case and everything else. And he definitely, you know, he had a bad period of time. And so did Microsoft. What's interesting now is Microsoft's sort of the leader in a lot of things That's in, in terms of mind. the eth- ethical. Yeah. Well, things change, right? They have, a, they have a leader, a CEO right now who's incredible. Um, Satya Nadella, who's been there forever and he worked under Gates. Um, so, you know, I think people evolve over time. And I think one of the things around his, his healthcare stuff, he, both he and his wife, let's not leave out his wife, have been very active in healthcare education, all kinds of things, and really thinking hard about how you uh, invest in public health. And so I, I think it's something, you know, he's sort of become a, he's taken the best parts of himself and applied it to these things. And, you know, he has tons of critics, of course, now, of course, he's getting attacked by the, right. the, the sort of the, co- the COVID idiots, I call them. But, um, they, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. But, you know, they're putting a lot of time and effort into figuring out how to eradicate things like malaria. Uh, that's when an area he's really been out front on. Um, and when I was happened to be at that speech that he gave about the, the pandemic, and I was really like, whoa, wow, he's probably right. You know, at the time when he said it, and a lot of people were like, oh, it's just Bill being Bill. But I think he really is just one of these data people, and he understands, you know, after having studied public health, where this could 
go out of hand. And so I think what's what's sad is people attacking him the way they are and saying he's trying to make money off of making vaccines. And of course, there's the anti-vax people who are just reprehensible, um, uh, you know, attacking him and stuff like that. But I do, it's, it is kind of amazing to think of, I was with Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, I did a podcast with him. I said, you remember when we all hated each other and you ever, you were the evil people and, and he, we were laughing and, you know, now they're very, that's a thoughtful company who's, it's doing very so, well. So yeah, talk and, to and me, talk to me front. about Microsoft. If that battle with Thomas Pen, Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson in 2000 yeah. was about uh, Microsoft bigfooting the desktop, I remember this discussion about, uh, you know, AOL had bought Netscape and so it was Netscape versus Internet Explorer and the Trojan horse and the foot in the door and whatnot. And meanwhile, we're talking about a desktop when the desktop is about to be kind of obviated slowly but surely over the next right. five to seven years by first it's the iPod, and then it's the iPhone. How in the world, to bring it back to the mundane, Kara, is Microsoft now worth $1.4 trillion? It completely missed no, it the smartphone. It Absolutely missed the smartphone. <laughs> yeah, it did. I, I, have a, I have a MacBook. I have all sorts of Apple products in the house. I don't have Microsoft Office anyway. I don't send money to, to Microsoft for sure. Skype or for Hotmail. What exactly, uh, what, what exactly is the market valuing now? Well, a lot of stuff. They have a lot of it. They're so integral to their cloud stuff, their Azure. Their, they have all kinds of products. I don't, you know, you don't have to get everything right if you get one area of your business correct. I mean, you know, Amazon, we just find, well, maybe not as fine selling things. They have AWS too. And so, I, you know, I think it's, it's more complex than that. And I think they got out of a lot of the stuff they weren't good at, which is they were in content. If you remember, they had MSNBC. Um, MS is Microsoft in the right. MSNBC. Um, and so uh, they were in cable for a while. They did, you know, search, which they're not as invested in. They did, they had all the sorts of websites. People don't remember a thing called Mungo Park that Microsoft mm. MSN did. Um, and they just sort of, they were trying to sort of react to trends and, and maybe try to take some markets that were in But Kara, is it the, is it the 1995 well. kind of Windows 95 upgrade me, like eight megabytes of RAM that is thinking back, like I have not, I have not made a single Microsoft transaction in 20 years. So, but I'm not the target a, customer, right? It's the enterprise. You're not the target customer. Yeah, it's the enterprise. And I think they're still, they really are, you know, under Satya Nadella, they're super focused on that. They're focused on on their, you know, sticking to their knitting in a lot of ways. And so I think they're, uh, they're a perfect example of a company that's really focused itself again and not sort of run off in this insecurity uh, towards trends. And, you know, it's not, it hasn't been a particularly... Uh, innovative culture. You know what I mean? They had borrowed a lot, very much like Facebook, if you think about it. They borrow a lot of other people's ideas for years. Um, but now they're really sticking to what they do best, which was at the heart of what they do, which is uh, off enterprise software um, and enterprise cloud solutions and all kinds of things like that. And they and people trust them and they do a great job. And so, and they've, you know, they've moved with the times in terms of what they need to be cloud-based and everything else. And, um, it just they just weren't good at the other things. It's okay not to be good at phones, but you know Google on the other hand has done very well with phones. Although I don't think they make uh, as much money there, but they they did very well with YouTube. YouTube's been a real money maker for them. Um, so sometimes it works. And Google you wouldn't think of as a content company, but YouTube is certainly a content play, right? Um, and so uh, so it just depends on on on. But still, Microsoft's business is enterprise. Google's business is search. Facebook's business is still social media, even though they're trying to do other things. And so as they start to grow and get into these massive valuations, they've got to find other businesses, right? Like that's what's really happening is these big tech companies are or like Amazon, for example. It's moving into entertainment. It's moving yeah, yeah. into healthcare. It's moving into delivery. It's moving in, you know, it's just was looking at some movie chains. It's moving into adjacent businesses. And they have to because they're so big. Yeah, and I... I they have to grow. Wanna, that's, that's the fear. I want to talk to you specifically fears. about Amazon. You took the words out of my mouth. I want to yeah. get in the head yeah. of Jeff Bezos. We both grew up in Miami. Mm -hmm. We both went to the same college and everything. He was a curiosity in the mid-90s with this bookseller and, and you know, yep. the, the donkey-like guffaw and everything. And I'm, I'm looking at the chart right here. This, the company, Amazon, is worth $1.2 trillion. What was at the market's low, I think a $75 stock, is now a $2,400 yeah. stock. It's at an all-time high right now. Not that we're going to focus on the stock market, but I couldn't tell you in 10 seconds what this company does. It's a behemoth of a retailer. It's a web services 
mainstay. It's a film studio. It owns Whole Foods, so it's a grocery giant. It owns one of the Mm -hmm. leading shoe sellers in America. He personally owns the Washington Post. And what's amazing to me, you remember citing Steve Jobs' reality distortion force field with all the people Mm -hmm. that he charmed. I wonder if this guy has a, a, a reality distortion force field of sorts with Wall Street because they don't seem to judge him on retail sales or profitability. Just a few days ago, he stepped up and said, guys, uh, I have some news you're not going to love. I'm plowing $4 billion yeah. back into the business. I mean, who? What, what is he? Who gets that that pass? But actually, it has been making money. Like, recently, it has, it, it has over the past couple of years, done very well. And because, like, AWS is one of the most, pro- could be by itself, enormously sure. powerful tech company. And so I think, I think Wall Street has gotten to know that this guy is really, you know, investing heavily. And that's what he's doing. And, he's, and they've given him this pass because they've gotten great results from him in the past. So I don't think it's surprising. You know, I think what's, what's, he gets a bigger pass than, say, an Apple or other companies because people have seen when they give him a pass what he results in. It results in AWS. It results in, you know, other things that are doing really well. And so I think that I don't think I think the issues you have around Bezos is whether, you know, he's he's using the data he gets from his selling of third party things to facilitate his own businesses. And that's, you know, they're sort of in a Microsoftian position that way is that, you know, does the desktop facilitate them in moving into other businesses? And that's where they're getting into trouble. That's why Congress is interested. Uh, but you can't deny the, the, the innovation that's going on there. I think they but they've got some very glaring issues. The worker safety is another one. And that's what this money is being used to address is to create sort of a virus you know, uh, antivirus zone uh, for Amazon, sort of this virus contained uh, business distribution channel. And I think that's going to put him ahead of everybody else going forward. So let me ask you, where were you when you heard that he bought Whole Foods? Like that, that was such a curiosity. And I I said this with the- We we talked about it on one of my shows, one of my podcasts So here's Scott Galloway. So Scott Galloway, Professor Galloway, $14 billion in cash. It's never going to move the needle. They're never going to be judged on Whole Foods. I don't even think they break it out their earnings statement. But suddenly yeah. it's a headache for him in a pandemic. You have worker walkouts. You have people pushing for uh, PPE and hazard pay. These are not things, I mean, he has had to deal with them in the warehouses, but this was supposed to be a, a kind of a, you know, welcome to the machine type company. This was supposed to be about automation and big data. Yeah. And he is in fact invested in uh, very old school technologies. There was a rumor this week that he's going to go after AMC, the movie theater chain. I mean, what yeah, what could yeah. he possibly be well, thinking? Well, that makes sense. Why why was he thinking? It's perfect. He has a he has content and it's it's ownership of content. He can distribute things. It's, that's not unusual. Right now, what's happening is all the, there's all these distressed properties, and there's going to be more. And you have to figure out if they're cyclically problematic or if they're structurally problematic. And movie theaters are structurally problematic. So if you have some cash, it's a great time to be buying things um, that. Would, at lower costs, and so that's what's going on there. Is that this is a great distribution chain, and then yeah, it's, not, Cara, it's not that big. Cara, a when was the movie theater business a last a good business? When was it last a good well, business? I mean, people haven't been going to movies. Yes, but it could be. It, people still are going to movies, and they're just like right. You know what? AOL's uh, dial-up business is still a business. It's still a business. It's still a business. And so, if they have, you know, they have this sort of long chain, long string of distribution. No matter where Amazon makes things, they distribute them there. Why not? If it's so inexpensive, I think Amazon made more money in thirty seconds in terms of value than it cost to buy AMC. So, what's the difference? It's hardly a. It's nothing to them to buy it. It's like buying a pack of gum. So like, that so therein, the, you know, therein begs the question, if they're that big, I don't want to call it too big to fail, but too big to care, right? And on top of the fact that he's been a lightning rod because he personally owns the Washington Post, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a regulatory risk of this guy that, that especially with... Um, you know, if the GOP were to regain power on Capitol Hill, a lot of, I think there's a lot of heat. There's a lot of heat. They're not going to do that, though. That's not what's happening. But um, there's a lot of heat around him, especially, you know, among Democrats, Elizabeth Warren and others. And actually, Josh Hawley on the Republican side has been very active in that regard. Um, I think that there's issues around the marketplace, for sure. You know, I I think other things are going to be a bit harder for government to sort of make an argument of why he has to spin off AWS. Well, why? Why does he have to? Like, they have to make an actual argument of why they have to do it. And Microsoft wasn't broken up, by the way. They actually, the case got much more complicated after the big ruling. It didn't go quite as far as people thought it did. Um, and so you you have something you have something here. You got to be really smart in terms of what's problematic. And I, to me, the, their biggest vulnerability is from a PR point of view, the worker 
safety stuff. And he's trying to address that. Obviously, for years, they've had that hanging over their head, how they treat people in warehouses, how they treat their own, you know, the executives, the tough nature of that company. Now, that's not illegal, by the way, to be tough. It's a question of when it gets legal. So that's a PR problem. It's Mm. also a, it's a moral problem. Like, you're so rich, why don't you make the best workplace available to anybody, you know? And so that's their PR problem. And also a problem they should, they should just be doing because it's the right thing to do. Um, And then they have this marketplace problem, which is they, they have Amazon products that are selling, say, batteries or whatever sitting next to, you know, if you're a third-party seller and you own Duracell or whatever, you, you're get, Amazon has a ton of information on what sells and how it sells and then has a lot of control. And so can you control a very important marketplace? Now, Amazon's arguing it's only a small percentage of all retail, but as all retail is in distress, they get stronger and stronger. And this coronavirus crisis has proved that. And so they should they have owned the marketplace and also sell things in competition with the marketplace? That's going to be a that that is one area they're completely vulnerable, and that's where that Congress is looking at. Carrick. Just just being big is not sure. is not argument enough. It's could you not. explain? Could you explain for our listeners what AWS Amazon Web Services? How integral it is to other sites, other you know e-commerce transactions. Like if I'm binging on Netflix, is that AWS? I think Netflix is AWS. There's, there's different companies. Microsoft. The, the big players in this are Google, Microsoft. And uh, Amazon and Amazon had a very early lead. Google and and Microsoft weren't paying attention at all. And Amazon did this as a side business, and it's it's run by a guy named Andy Jassy, and it's gotten enormous. And so it, what it does is it, it it people use it for all kinds of things, but it's you know to run their business, their their digital lives of whether it's a commerce. Uh, I think Snapchat's on. I can't remember. They go to one or the other. They tend to go to Google or or Microsoft or. Or Amazon, and so this is where people, you know, you off you offload your your digital life uh, for your for your company, and so um, they do all kinds. Of, they do so many things now. They used to it used to just be storage. It used to be like they do a lot of stuff in terms of how to operate a digital business online, and they have been the leading one. I think the others have caught up uh, recently. Uh, quite handily, but it's a great business for them and it makes a ton of money. And so they had all this capacity doing their regular business and this has turned out to be a more lucrative business than their regular business. Mm. Um, so it's just it's just another business that they did. It's sort of like Slack was not was a game company and the game company didn't work, but the system they used to talk to each other became Slack. And so sometimes things, you know, Sometimes there's businesses within things that you don't know, and this is one of these really big businesses that came out of things they were already doing. Um, they have, oh yeah, they do have, uh, yeah, this is Amazon, top 10 Amazon AWS customers, Netflix, Twitch, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook does some business with them, Turner Broadcasting, BBC, Baidu, ESPN. They have tons of, of customers. And they again, their big competitors would be Microsoft and Google. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Kara Swisher. She is a, I called you a Silicon Valley colossus, even though you've moved now to the Beltway, uh, contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, where I really appreciated the, the recent opinion column you, you filed, the immunity of the tech giants. Everybody is wondering about this in the pandemic. The NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ has been on fire. Uh, Wall Street watchers are scratching their heads at how is it possible that you have 30 million people filing for unemployment, 33 million people or so, and the NASDAQ, which is chock full of Netflix and Microsoft and Apple and Google, is up year to date. And it's like relentless. It cannot stay down. But that also begs the question, we are using these services more than ever. Uh, We're on Facebook a lot during quarantine. We are on Netflix, binging it like never before in quarantine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talk about Microsoft's cloud, Amazon's cloud, buying on Amazon, how Amazon can even uh, guarantee Amazon Prime delivery after two days. But this does bring Mm -hmm. up the problem of their hegemony. You say if power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, how can we best describe the kind of power big tech will wield when the coronavirus crisis is over. How about this? The tech giants could have all the power and absolutely none of the accountability, at least all the power that will truly matter. Talk to me about that. Well, I talked about that. I wrote a whole column about that. I write about it all the time. I think what's happened is there, you know, there's a real culling of the herd among tech companies and other things. And these companies, which had a lot of cash on hand and had a lot of ability to weather the storm, when you have like cash on hand and able to do something when even in a downturn, you can, you know, sort of, you sort of, agonize over, but you could say, ah, an opportunity. And so these big tech companies are in in really great positions to 
to take advantage of what's coming out of this as other companies fail. And so, you know, like AMC is a good example. AMC is, is going to be a lot, it's really going to be challenged, has been challenged, and it's accelerating trends that were happening before. But now, like, look at all this great stuff available for the, on the cheap. And so these companies will get more and more powerful as they become more and more integral to our lives. Now everybody's used to delivery. Everybody, this has been a great marketing event for Amazon, like, I hate to say it, but it is because everyone's now using it. I, I do and depend on it. And, and it's more, you know, same thing with Walmart, by the way. They've never done better. Sure. And they're not just selling food. They're selling like, you know, we had Stephanie Rule from MSNBC on our show, our pivot show today. Like, look, Walmart's also selling surfboards. What about the local surfboard shop? They're out of business. Like these big businesses are, who have been able to operate as essential services during this time are just making hay while, while everybody else is sort of at home, shuttered, and businesses are shuttered. And so that's you just can see how small businesses just can't survive compared to the large ones. I got to ask you because uh, several uh, value investors and venture investors have brought it up. Have you been following this phenomenon north of the border, Shopify? Yes, of course. Yeah, we've had we've had Toby at the, the CEO at our event. Explain uh, that. Explain He's that for our they're, listeners. They're, they're, this they're, is like uh, well, it's Shopify is a way for people to get online without using Amazon, essentially uh-huh. to sell not using Amazon, and they do all kinds of logistics, all kinds of stuff with it, and so it's an Amazon alternative, so you don't have to go into the Borg, essentially, uh-huh. and so 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 it's it's a perfect idea for a business, and actually they they do really good execution, which is look small seller. The minute you have a popular thing on Amazon, they'll copy you. Like we were talking to the people who run Away, they don't want to put Away on Amazon because they'll just create a knockoff copy and sell it. And by the way, it's already on there. Amazon's aware of a way, you know what I mean? And so this is a way, a, a, a manner to, to, to do Shopify as a way for people not to have to work with Amazon to, to do so. And I think that's, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's a way you build a business online, no matter what you do, and you don't have to go to the board to do it. Uh, and they provide all those services because it's really hard to do it yourself, you know, essentially. So Shopify provides those services. Kara, when you look at Mark Zuckerberg and you've interviewed him and you've covered this company intensely, I'd love your columns also about Facebook and mm-hmm. decontaminating Facebook, you know, in the New York mm-hmm. Times. Will they ever, because it's such a license to print money and the information mining and, and the way mm-hmm. they can have predictive technology and AI, will they ever be forced to offer a, a less nefarious subscription product to people out there? Could they ever, uh, in your mind? Oh, I don't think they. They've talked about it, but they haven't ever done it. A subscri- meaning what? No advertising. No. no advertising. No data mining. No shady stuff between Insta. I guess no they selling. Could. Why your should stuff. they? They're, they're making plenty of money doing what they're doing. People seem willing to do that. So I guess why? Why do? Well, the paradox why? is every, literally, literally everybody else is begging you to to turn to the subscription model, but these guys are like, no, advertising is just fine by us. It is just fine by them. Why should they do it? They will. They'll switch it when they need to. There's no reason to. Like, there's no, you know, there may be some people that want an advertising data-free, data-grabbing-free service, but lots of people don't. So why would you? Why, why would you? If you're doing really well with your business, there's no reason. I think the pressure they have, of course, it's more than a PR pressure, is that that's their vulnerability, is that people have no trust in this company, or they have little trust because of all the different violations. And so they're... Um, you know, that's their vulnerability. That's their vulnerability. So this guy made all the money in the world. He's one of the richest people on the planet, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he's in his 20s. Mm-hmm. Have you wondered why he didn't just go no, off? He's in his 30s. He's in his 30s. Why didn't he go off and yeah. do the Bill Gates thing and just rehabilitate his reputation over 20 years? What, what is there well, left for him to young. do? He's Bill Gates ran Microsoft for a long time. You know what I mean? Like, Bill Gates didn't retire from Yeah, but look at him brought older. before Congress. Look at all the various memes. Well, you know, it's, he didn't brought. He went to Congress. You know, so he doesn't care. What does he care? It's like that's the sort of cost of doing business, essentially. And, you know, so far they haven't suffered that much. What what's what have they suffered precisely? No, they haven't. PR, they haven't. It's all PR. People making fun of his sure, haircut. Sure. <laughs> you know, and a lot. Of, you know, what happens? It denig- people. You know, that is gross when people do that. I always get sort of irritated when reporters and others are like, "Oh, look at his hair." I'm like, "What does that have to do with anything?" Like, let's talk about what the business is doing. Let's talk about him as a business. You know, years from now, he's already started a foundation. Although people were questioning how they did it because they have full control of all the money still. Um, 
you know, he has plenty of time with his wife, and his wife is really quite a, a lovely doctor, and they've been doing a lot of stuff around uh, medical stuff and all kinds of things. And eventually they will become major uh, uh, philanthropists. philanthropists, I think. Yeah. And, you know, Bill Gates is his mentor. People don't realize that Bill Gates is, is Mark Zuckerberg's mentor, really. So eventually he will get to that, but not uh, not today. Not today. He's running his business. He's a young man who's... Uh, who is who is who is total control of that business in a way very few people do, and he's doing what he wants to do. And I think so far, he's gotten out of a lot of scrapes, you know, or or things like that. And so why shouldn't he keep doing what he's doing? That's what that's what I'd imagine is his mind. Sure, Kara Swisher. Uh, in the final stretch of the interview, I'd love to uh, to pivot, if you will, to to journalism, the state of okay. journalism. I, this has been now a a, a secular and cyclical story for the better part of 20 years. Newspapers dying out, newsrooms losing jobs. You have the great fortune of being affiliated with the one uh, pure play newspaper, the uh, the original gangster, the New York Times company. It's now worth more than $6 billion, mm-hmm. completely vindicated. Even mm-hmm. recently they announced that print advertising fell off a cliff, but nobody seems to care because they, they are adding... They are adding digital subscribers left and right, especially since Donald Trump was elected. And also, some of the experimentation is you would not have imagined that the New York Times yeah. could have created an ad studio in-house, or the New York Times would have created a mm-hmm. a competitor to public radio in-house. I mean, The Daily, your show that's going to be migrating on to the New York Times opinion page, you can now go straight to digital. The means of distribution have changed. But why is it that this is just one example, that we don't see another player out there that has had this pricing power or this clout that everybody else seems to be dying out. Yeah, I, it's doing really well. I, lo- I mean, I'm not an employee of the New York Times, just to be clear, um, but they definitely have, have been really uh, innovative and aggressive in terms of subscription stuff. They've been really innovative, aggressive around new things like podcasting. Um, you know, they're obviously the must listen to, you know, most most read, most need of reading uh, newspaper in the world right now. I think they're doing amazing reporting. And, you know, of course, they're getting flack from the president and everything else, but I think that means they're doing a good job. Um, they've made certainly like a lot of places, a lot, every media company makes mistakes and they up and down. But in general, it's a really innovative culture um, for, a, for a long time newspaper. Right. They're doing yeah. all kinds of innovative things. And it's hard to, to pivot into a new into new business. But they've been very much saying subscriptions are important. Podcasts are important. Uh, we have to move, you know, they've tried to move into video and they're doing stuff around that that's really interesting. Uh, different ways of reporting, different ways of, 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 of delivering news. And just the other day I was listening to an article. They, they have these new audio things that are really interesting. Um, and I, I think it, they, they become, you know, a must have in an information diet of most of high level people, essentially. You must read the New York Times. And I think that's critical. They've always been that way, but now they've, they've they think really hard about the innovative ways they can do it. And I really, I really enjoy writing for them. Um, people were sort of surprised. They're like, why are you going back to a print? They're not a print publication. They're a media company, right? They don't, it's not, that, that print is, is one of their businesses. Um, but a lot of, and advertising is one of their businesses and a tough one in this environment for sure, for every media company uh, that's like it, including Box, where I also work. Right. Um, so I think they're just doing, I was really, the reason I'm moving, I'm doing a podcast for them is I really think they're really leaning into the concept that, you know, someone's got to be the big podcast producer or one of them, and they're going to be that. They're going to do that, and they do it with such excellence and and uh, quality that it's hard to resist. So here's the interesting thing: you have all this coverage a few days ago on the regional newspaper correspondents who are on mm-hmm. furlough while they learn they won Pulitzer prizes. I mean, yeah, I know, what a I devastating that. thing to read. And yeah, I wonder, perfect, kind of counterfactually, right? if you were to set up at the New York Times, if suddenly one of your VC friends or something gave you all the money in the world and said, "Kara." Uh, yeah. Hang a shingle on Eighth Avenue by the Port Atrocity, mm-hmm. and create Kara Company, and go and find the thirty New York Times podcasters and correspondents and everything that you most want. Offer to double their pay, sight unseen, and you yeah, set. People have tried that. So here's the interesting thing: Didn't if you work. set that up, does that is that Alpha portable? Is that I mean, can no, that or is I it the New York I, Times? Yes. That everybody no, is looking No, it's after. both. It's both. I think there's a lot of like play, like like Andrew Ross Sorkin. What is he? Is he a New York Times or is he works for NBC? As a squawk, uh, the thing in the morning he does squawk alley. I think, you know, he does a lot of he does conferences. I do the same thing. I don't think you have to choose. It, they they tried that years ago. There was something I'm blanking on the name of it. There was something where they hired all the best people, media people. It's just 
and then and they paid them a lot. And that happened a lot just about seven years ago. The same thing around. So, yeah, when uh, you look at the company. politicos, the Voxes, the uh, Axios, I think you have world. to have a viable business. I think you have to have a viable business. That's really the only way to go. And if you don't have a viable business, you can't just unless you're Jeff Bezos and feel like throwing money at something. And by the way, the Washington Post is, is, is I think, marginally profitable. I don't think it's enormously profitable, but I think it's doing OK. And so and he's putting in sort of all sorts of innovative things. I think you have to have a business model. You know, unless you want it to be a public service thing and and then that's a different story. Like, you know, like I think uh, ProPublica is doing amazing work, but I don't think it's making money. Right. Like so. But so what? It's got it's got all these. They have a different their business model is. Uh, the kindness of rich people, the kindness of donors, the kindness, you know what I mean? But they're still serving a purpose. So you have to figure out what your business model is, whether it's philanthropic donations that will then lead to this great journalism, or is it the New York Times, which is subscriptions and advertising, or, or is it me? I do events. We make a lot of money at those, or podcasts, which now makes a lot of money. And so I think you have to have a business model when you're thinking about it. And again, it doesn't have to make a ton of money, but you certainly can't like operate with without thinking about that. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't start anything. What I would do is, interestingly, I interviewed a, uh, A.G. Salzberger, who is now uh, running the Times um, company. And so he was, uh, he's not the CEO, he's the publisher of the Times. And he, he and I were discussing, he said, so what if Lorraine Jobs, who has been investing in media, if I could get her to give you a billion dollars, what would you do with it? And he was like, I'd like to make a billion dollars ourselves. And I was like, still, if you got a billion dollars. And, and he was, he didn't really answer the question. And what I said is I would invest in local. I would think local is a really interesting opportunity and bring sort of New York Times level quality to local newspapers, which are struggling, and figure out a business plan for local newspapers. I think I would spend my money on that. If, you know, but not just, just as a cha- not as a charity. Warren Buffett took that detour and he spit it out. I mean, he owned a bunch of regional papers. I remember when he they initially bought a, them, he a said, lot of you know, churches are still going to advertise or church picnics from here. And he owned the Richmond Times Dispatch and yeah, everything and promptly he, spit sorry. it out. It's not it's not working. And that gets to the kind of cosmic question for me. Outside of the New York Times right. or maybe the Wall Street Journal with enterprise people right. with hedge fund logins and, and, and everything, where right. are people actually paying for journalistic content? Especially right. well, especially is. when we're well, hitting up against subscription fatigue, Kara. I pay for Spotify, or at least my brother pays for Spotify. My brother pays for Netflix, right? Amazon Prime. Right. Everybody is trying to hit me up for uh, the iCloud subscription, the Amazon up tier thing. Like how many different right. logins can you hit me up for? I don't know. I think if you have a great product, people will buy it. That's just, you have to be thinking harder in terms of what your product is. And I, I know that's difficult. It's difficult to hear for a lot of things, but th- I think there is a local business model. I don't think they tried very hard. I don't think they innovated anything that you didn't see like mass. You have to make investments in things to become innovative and have like Jeff Bezos at, at Washington Post, he's making a lot of investments and at the same time they're doing okay financially. And I don't think it's, you know, you don't want to just be the thing the billionaire owns. You want to figure out your own way so that you have a viable business. And I think even if you're a billionaire, you want a viable business, I would imagine, uh, unless you don't, right? So it's just it just depends on what your, what what your business model is. Like, I think it's really important. I would be investing in local news and figuring out a way. Maybe there isn't a business model for local news anymore, but I don't, I think there's always a business model for something if you think hard. I just do. And I think it's, it would be really interesting if you had a lot of money to experiment in that area. That's, I would find that fascinating, hmm. personally. You know, the one enfant terrible in Silicon Valley, if you want to call it, that gets talked about the most is Elon Musk. And he's very much in oh, the news right now. I'm just, looking at, you know. I'm just looking at some of the things. He's fighting with Alameda County. So, yeah, I, I called him on Trump, Twitter Trump Rosa Self him. Parks, right? I mean, this is, this is the factory. No, he's threatening. Not, like, I wouldn't use that. We're all going back to no. work. You can't control me. <laughs> I, I, this guy has had so many brushes with regulators because of what he's tweeted. Yeah. You know, the company yeah. is, is, is thriving. In he's, spite winning of he's, he's winning, he's winning he's today. He's winning easily worth more than any U.S. car maker, even though they bleed yeah. through a lot of cash. How do you, how do you think do. about it's this guy? Car. I know there are, there are reckless change the world types people, you know, Steve Jobs, maybe to a t- tiny there you extent. Have it. You just said it. Just and they're just, are they just supposed to be reckless change the world type people or the founder of Uber? Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, they're very different people. Elon is a really unusual and interesting and innovative person, and he also crosses lines all the time. I don't, you know, he is what he is, and I think that you know he's now he's very dramatic. Arrest me if you want, if you must, but don't arrest any of my other employees. You know, he's just. What that? What sending just, sending he, a, a submarine to save 
kids across, yeah. you know, and then getting into a fight with the submarine I, driver. Or I something. don't know I mean, what to tell you. Well, he, he had that was a stupid uh, thing to do. That was, you know, he does stupid things and he does them quite loudly. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. Some of the stuff is great. Some of it is. And I don't know what to tell you. He just is. He is what he is. He's, he's always been that way. And he's got, uh, you know, he's he's just the way he is. And I think the issue is, you know, this idea of whether it's rule of law or maybe he's right or maybe he's doing it wrong. Or, you know, there are a lot of people who feel if you open it safely, you've got to start doing businesses and stuff like that. And so um, anyway, it's just it's just really important that. He do, he wants to do it the way he wants to do it. When he gets frustrated, he goes out on Twitter and uses it. Lots of people have different ways to do it. Some people feel it's too Trumpy. Other people feel, yay, go Elon. So I, I don't know what to say. It's, I think as long as they open that factory safely, I'm good with that. And all the antics that it takes and the back and forth with, with Alameda or whatever, I think it's just it's a lot of noise. And I think the issue is keeping health, workers healthy. It should be the priority. If they're not, he should pay for that. If they are get sick because of bad things, bad operational things, choices he makes, he should be sued. But if he if he's getting those factories open, people working, and they do it in a safe, in a relatively safe way, I mean, there's no perfection, obviously, in this in this crisis. Um, that's good. I just it's just what he is. He, he is what he so is. So here's I don't know. What else to give say. me give me a couple of two I minutes. I didn't call him whether he was crazy. I said he's not crazy. We're all crazy, but just he's, in the, in the final two he, minutes or so we have left with you, I need you to I need you to indulge me in some. Sure, baseless sure. speculation, just to sure. get some hot clicks here. One of the most popular governors in the United States is Gavin Newsom, former mayor of San Francisco. Yeah. You're probably pals yeah, with him. Yeah, he's caught in the middle of this. You're, probably, you're probably pals with him. But I do know him really let well. Let me yes, speculate, please, baselessly. Maybe not socialize. I want to just speculate okay. baselessly. There is a good chance that uh, Joe Biden will tap Kamala Harris to become his running mate. Uh-huh. And Gavin Newsom sure. is going to have to appoint a, a senator, at least in the interim, to take her place. And there is a chance that it could be Kara Swisher. I mean, after all, it was no. said that you were going to run for mayor <laughs> no. of San Francisco. No, it's never, never going to be. Why? You're already platooning between D.C. <laughs> they and... They have a lot of people. No, no. Can you help me no, make some I'm news not. here? I mean, why are you in D.C.? You're no, probably talking I, in the corridors of power. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm in the corridors of power. Me and Lindsey Graham are hanging out and, and, uh, and, and knitting together. No, uh, no, no. My kids live in D.C. and that's why I'm But in weren't you considering a mayoral run in San Francisco? I was, but now I'm living in D.C. because my kids are living in D.C. I don't, life has a way of changing things. Um, uh, Kara, work anyway, with me here. You can make you can you can make I, I some not, news I'm here. Sorry. You can live in DC no, and I'm San sorry. Francisco. I'm doing very. I have a lot. To go, I have a lot of jobs. I'm very much employed, and so I think that's what I'm going to focus on on this new podcast I'm doing for the Times, um, and all kinds of other things. So uh, I, I'm very interested in public service, but things have changed. Obviously, the mayor of San Francisco is a great mayor, London Breed. Um, the mayor died. Like things happen. Like things change, and I, there's no way I'd want to get in her way because uh, I think she's doing a great job. I just had her on the podcast recently, for example, and I just don't, I don't see that I would be the selection for senator. I just somehow don't think I'm on any list of anyone of any cause. Well, I'm just going to so try I mean, it out for size anyway. Uh, Kara yeah, Swisher, the junior U.S. Happening. senator from California. Yeah, sorry, not happening. Whatever's sorry, on your title, Kara, you are always welcome on this show, and I cannot thank you enough right. for coming on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Robin. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Steve Humble, Kelly Libby, and Digital Maven's Angela Messino and Alyssa Johnson. You can enjoy this program on NPR One, a most indispensable app. I love it. On Spotify, and of course, on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Subscribe early and often. Changing the world with scalable cloud-based solutions, one decibel at a time. I'm Robin Farzad. 